My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the leaders here as part of West Village Church, and today it is my privilege to be teaching us from this book, which is called the Bible. And we believe that this book is not simply some ancient document, but it is in fact God's direct words to us as humans, telling us who he is, what he has done, and then in light of that, who we are and how we ought to live. And so if you do not have one, uh, we have some right over here at the front, and I would invite you to take one as a free gift from us to you. And uh, in our 21st century digital age, you can also easily just download one from the App Store on your phone. If you are new with us, you may have missed this, but we have been traveling through this book of the Bible together called Matthew, and the section that we're currently in is called the Sermon on the Mount. Prior to this block of teaching, Jesus has been going around and telling everyone who will listen that God's kingdom is here, and he invites them to respond and follow him. And several of those people do. And so he gathers them together and, and in essence teaches them based on this reality of God's inbreaking kingdom and you choosing to submit your lives to his rule and reign. This then is how you ought to live. And so the Sermon on the Mount is in essence the constitution of the kingdom, the marching orders for those of us who say, yes, we want Jesus to be our king. And right at the very center of this sermon is a block of prayer is probably the most quoted, maybe second most quoted, I think John 3.16 might be the most quoted, but second most quoted part of the Bible. Uh, you may be familiar with it. Um, so over the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to take a step back from sort of our forward journey in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're actually going to spend some time together diving into the Lord's Prayer, unpacking it, and asking ourselves what it means to pray like Jesus. Now, I do find that prayer is a really interesting thing. If you talk to most people in most places, you will find that at some point in their lives, they do pray. In fact, this morning when we were doing our 9-10 prayer time together, uh, someone mentioned that they had a coworker who had no real understanding of religion or no background and yet was going through a tough time and requested that one of our, our team members pray for him. If you talk to a good Muslim, you'll know that that person will pray five times a day. And even last week when we were exploring Jesus' first little bit of teaching on prayer, we noted that a good Jewish person would pray up to three, three times a day. Uh, and, and what's interesting is any kind of world religion, we still see a prayer as a vibrant part of that. You know, people pray to their ancestors. They pray to animals. They pray to a pantheon of God and goddesses. Heck, they even pray to the universe. Almost every person at some point in their life will engage in this practice. And what that tells me is that each and every one of us feels a need at some point in our life to reach out to someone or something larger than ourselves. You know, even our West Coast lactose-free, fair trade, uh, spiritual but not religious culture, prayer is still a vibrant part of our lives a Pew Research Center study uh, studied prayer practices in the United States of America and a little bit more religious there than maybe in Canada, but they found that 55% of Americans pray daily. Daily. What I found even more interesting is that of those that they interviewed, 20% of those who identify with no religion, no faith background whatsoever, also prayed daily. In Canada, the statistics are similar. About 68% of 
of Canadians pray at some point. Uh, this is from a 2016 Angus Reid study, and that same study found that 42% of Canadians, so over a third of Canadians, pray at least once a week. And this tells us that prayer is indeed a vital part of people's lives. But for those of us who believe that prayer is not just some cry, some SOS for help to the universe or to some higher good power, I think prayer can sometimes be a frustrating and confusing experience. A few years ago when I was a youth pastor, one of my students came into my office one day and he said, Andrew, I don't want to pray anymore. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, it just feels like when I pray, I'm speaking to a brick wall. I'm saying words and no one is listening. Let me ask you, how many of us have felt that way before? Yeah, a few hands. You know, we desire to be in this conversation with God. And I think innately, if you're part of this church, if you're showing up here on a Sunday morning, you're probably someone who actually believes that this God is a personal God, someone who you actually want to interact with. But then we have this frustrating time in prayer. We wonder, why do we need to ask for things if God is all-knowing? He already knows what we need. Why do we need to pray for change if God is all-powerful? And why, when I pray, does it oftentimes feel like I'm talking to myself? Over the next couple of weeks, Jesus is going to invite us into an experience of listening to how he communicates with his father and inviting us to participate in that with him. And so if you find that prayer is a struggle for you, I want to invite you to continue to journey with us as we unpack this together. If you do have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to invite you to open them up to Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 6, and we're going to read simply just verse 9 today. So it's going to be one of those one-verse sermons. <laughs> So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Uh, he's just taught them a little bit on prayer. And then he tells them, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right at the very beginning of Jesus' prayer, he invites us to take a step back and recognize something unique with this word, our Father. And, and I want to highlight that, our just before I dive into that, I want to remind us of what Jesus has just previously talked about. And we, we preached on this last week, so if you weren't here, feel free to jump on the podcast and take a listen to that. But in, in last week, Jesus had been preaching and, and teaching, and he says that there are two ways to pray. And he confronts his followers and says, don't pray like the Gentiles, because they believe that by their extravagant and many words that they will be answered. So essentially, they believe that because of the way that they prayed, that their person or thing or spirit or force that they were praying to was obligated to answer them. He says, no, not for you. You are to pray to our Father. There's this really interesting reality that happens here because when Jesus says, pray to our Father, he doesn't say, pray to my Father based on my experience but based on how God has revealed himself to his people throughout history. There's this interesting movement that we see kind of springing up, and it has for a while in our Western culture. It's called expressive individualism. It's this idea that the center for how we judge everything as good is based on my experience and my feelings. And, and don't get me wrong, this is not something that's the world out here. This is something that saturates our culture right here 
in our church gathering. Let me ask you, when you come in in the, in the morning and, and you're singing and worshiping together through music, how do you evaluate if it's a good experience, if it's a positive thing? Is it based on my ability to express myself in the way that fits me? See, the issue there is that the centerpiece of everything that you're using as your evaluative tool is yourself. We do this all the time. We go home after the gathering and we evaluate how it made me feel, how funny was the preacher to me. How many of you have said this? Was I fed? And yet, when Jesus says that we are to pray to our Father, he reminds us that we are not simply experiencing a God in our image and of our making, but a God who has revealed himself, who has called us not just to follow him as individuals, but to come and be part of his people, his family, his work, and to follow his way. And so right off the bat, he challenges us to put us second. And that is why we as a church constantly talk about our family identity, constantly live it out in our community groups, because every single week we hang out with people who we might not ever hang out with for any other reason than that we share the same father. And it's a beautiful reminder, a beautiful picture every single week that we have a father that has brought us together, not based on me and my feelings and my work, but on him and his work. There's a, an interesting way that we tend to interact with each other. I see I'm using that word interesting a lot, so for those of you who like to pick up on those things, I apologize. <laughs> um, but there's a way that we interact with each other. It's a little binary, so I know that this isn't completely true all the time, and there's spectrums of this. But there's two ways that we tend to interact with each other. One of them is what I call transactional interaction. So uh, after the gathering, you might go out to a restaurant, you might order food, and in turn, you will provide money. So you can expect that the, the restaurant, the people working there will provide you food because you're providing the money. And likewise, you will have a server who will bring you that food and give you service, and they will expect that based on their service, you will give them a tip. That is a transactional relationship. There are conditions around it. But there's a second type of relationship, one that I would call a family relationship, one that is unconditional. My parents used to give me chores when I was a kid, and, uh, and some of my friends got paid to do their chores. My parents would never do that. They'd say, no, this is what it means to be part of a family. Uh, let me give you another example of how this looks. I live with three other people in my house. One of them is my wife, Shannon, and two of them are our tenants. Now, the way I interact with them is very different. To one, I am a husband, and to two others, I am a landlord. And so, as a landlord, I have certain responsibilities and obligations to my tenants based on the reality that they are providing money. So they give us money, and in turn, we provide a space for them to live. Should they fail to give us money, that space would not necessarily be theirs anymore. But I also have a wife. And trust me, if I ever tried to say, hey, <laughs> I cook dinner today, babe. I get that back rub. 
And she said, nah, nah, nah. I don't get to say, okay, you don't get to be in our house anymore. <laughs> Just to be clear, 80% of the time, it's probably the opposite. <laughs> uh, my wife is very gracious to me. But what I want you to understand about that is I have no quid pro quo with my wife. I have no uh, way that I can obligate her to do what I want. I simply have to trust that she loves me and I love her. And because of that, we will show up for each other unconditionally. So let me ask you, how do you approach God in prayer? Jesus says a Gentile prayer is one that comes with a laundry list of things that we are asking God. Conditions. Are we approaching God like he is our landlord and we are his tenants? The reality is, is that we also, or we even might be praying good things. Like, think about some of the things that you pray for. God, help me to be a better husband. God, I, I want to pray for this, this neighbor, this coworker that I have that has cancer. God, help me to have a heart that desires to serve you better. And each of these things might in and of themselves be good, but, but let me challenge you to think, do you believe that anyone else who is praying prays bad things? Like the Muslim who prays five times a day, is he praying bad things? The agnostic who prays to the universe, do you not think that these are the exact same things that that person can pray? Praying for your family, praying for healing, praying for things out of our control. No, these are not in and of themselves Christian prayers. These are tenant prayers to a landlord. The difference in a Christian prayer is that we don't approach God as our boss or as our wish, our father. And he is our father because we have been adopted as his sons and daughters. And, and so we get to experience him in a way that no one else can experience him. We have that free opportunity to approach conditionally. I, I, I just use that word adoption. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with, uh, with adoption here in British Columbia. Uh, about a year and a half ago, Shannon and I started on this journey of exploring adoption. We wanted to build our family, and it wasn't happening kind of the time frame and the means that we had hoped for. And so uh, God just kind of prompted us to start looking at this. And something interesting, 4,000 uh, 4, kids in British Columbia are in foster care right now. And about a thousand of those kids, about one quarter, are up for adoption. And as we start to unpack this a little bit, we realize that there is probably good reasons that these kids are in foster care. It's not just sort of arbitrary, like someone says, oh yeah, you're a bad parent, you spank your kids, we're taking your kids. Uh, most of the time, there are some really significant reasons that kids are in foster care. They've experienced severe trauma, abuse, and neglect. And even when a kid is taken into the system uh, basically after birth, it is often because the parent has used substances that will forever impact the way that that child interacts with other human beings. There are reasons that these kids are in foster care, and it means that if you choose to adopt them, it is not an easy journey. You talk to many uh, parents who adopt kids out of foster care, and they will tell you the first several years are extremely difficult. But something really beautiful starts to happen because a foster kid is used to 
having their bad behavior mean that they are oftentimes being shifted to a new home. But when they're adopted, that stops happening. And suddenly, there are these people, no matter how badly they act, that love them and care for them unconditionally. Now, I think for many of us, we might be approaching God in prayer like a foster child. Just imagine, how would that sound? And how would that change if you suddenly started to realize that you had been adopted? That no matter how badly you behave, no matter how disappointing you seem to think you were, that he is never going to send you away. But at the same time, the knowledge that no matter how good you are, you cannot possibly earn his love because it is already freely given. How would that shape the way that you pray? I want to take a step back here for a second. And and for some of you, hearing God address his father seems an impossible feat because you have had really awful, terrible experiences with your dads. Your dad was supposed to be a protector and he was an abuser. Your dad was supposed to be someone who built you up but constantly tore you down. And I don't want to minimize the pain that that has caused in your life. I think one of the reasons that it is so awful for us when our parents, and especially our fathers, act in these kind of ways, because let's be honest, we experience that in lots of other areas of our life. There are lots of people who are abusive, who are cruel. But I think one of the reasons it's so painful when it's our fathers is because we inherently know that he is supposed to be different. So for you today, I want to remind you again of those first two words that Jesus says that we are to speak in our prayer. It is not my Father, but our Father. Our Father. And our Father comes to you and says, will you let me be your father. He's the kind of father who sits on his porch day after day waiting for his child to come home, his child who is blowing up their own life with their own self-destructive tendencies. And when that child wises up and starts coming, crawling back, begging just for some scraps from the table, the father runs to you And he doesn't just stand there waiting for you to give an apology. He grabs you, big Abe-style bear hug, and pulls you in. And before you can sputter out your apologies, he throws his coat over your shivering shoulders, and he brings you into his house, and he throws the most killer party. Why? Because he is so excited that you have come home to him. That is your father. Jesus continues and uh, and he invites his followers to move on from how we address God and and move into a place where we actually request things from God. So he he draws out six different petitions that, that he invites his church to engage in. The first is, 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, what's interesting, if you read what follows, your kingdom come, your will be done, what you'll notice is each of the first three of the six petitions all start with God and concern for his will and his glory. Let me ask you, when you pray, do you start it off with things that you desire, things that you need, things that you feel, and things that you want? If that is the case, what I would suggest to you is it's quite possible that you don't have a quite right picture of who you are in relation to who God is. We've been quoting him a lot as we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, but I think uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has been a, a little bit of a guide for us, and his words are timely here as well. He writes this, The important thing to grasp is this, that it matters not what our conditions and circumstances may be. It matters not what our work may be. It matters not at all what our desires may be. We must never start with ourselves. We must never start with our own petitions. Before we begin to think of ourselves and our own needs, even before our concern for others, we must start with this great concern about God and his honor and his glory. Do your prayers reflect this deep longing for God's will to be fulfilled in your life? Do your actions reflect that? Jesus tells us that we're not simply to address God as our Father, but our Father who is in heaven. That's important to note because oftentimes we can sit here and and try and make God small. But he's not. He's big. He's great. He's different than us. We, uh, we use that word holy often in, in uh, our church culture. We throw it around quite frequently, and, and oftentimes I don't think we know what it means, but it, it kind of literally means set apart. There's this really beautiful story. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Okay, a few of us. C.S. Lewis writes this kids series called The Chronicles of Narnia. And the first book that he wrote was called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so within this story, these children are in this fantastical land where animals talk. And they meet these talking beavers. And the beavers bring them to their home, which is, of course, a dam, of course. And, uh, and they're explaining this hero character to them named Aslan. And they tell the kids, well, Aslan is a lion. And you can imagine how the children respond. What? A lion? Is he safe? And the beavers look at the kids like they're, they're idiots, and they say, of course he's not safe. Did you not just hear what we said? He is a lion. But he's good. He is good. You know, so often when we start our prayers centered on ourselves. In essence, what we are doing is we're forgetting that God is a lion. And we stick him in a little box and put him on our shelf and only pull him off when we need something from him. Because we think he is safe. And I want to remind us today that our God is not safe. Our God is the same God who struck two people dead because they lied about how much money 
they had given. This is the God who wiped out the world with a flood because of its evilness and its wickedness. And this is the same God that one day will judge the living and the dead. He is not a safe God. He is a holy God. And he will not stand for any unholiness. And yet, when we look at our actions, do they reflect an understanding of this? Is it easier for us to spend an hour on YouTube, or spend an hour of time just listening to our God through his word? Is it easier for us to Snapchat our friends or to go and talk to someone who may never, ever get to experience God unless someone goes and tells them? Is it easier for us just to sleep in on a Sunday morning or skip out on meeting together in community because it's just more convenient to watch Netflix and chill than it is to come and prepare our hearts to hear from our God. And are our prayers just rote activities that we do because we think we should? Or are they sincere conversations with our Father. That word holy, as I said, means to be set apart. And I think uh, another great way to understand it is how R.C. Sproul puts it. Uh, he's an author and theologian. He says this, What does it mean to say God is holy? It means that he is different from anything that we experience or find in the material universe. That God, the creator, differs from all of his creatures. When we fail to acknowledge God's holiness, we are in fact blaspheming him. We are speaking against him. We are belittling him. We are treating him with flippancy. And our culture is saturated with this. The other day, uh, Shannon and I were just watching one of our uh, TV shows that we like to watch, 30 Rock, and it's older, and, and we were just kind of watching through it. And, uh, and I just started to notice, because I'd been reading through this text, like how many jokes they make uh, you know, about God and people who believe in God. It's probably more common in our culture today to hear the concept of God be used as a swear word than it is to hear it spoken with awe and reverence. And it's really easy for you and I to sit here and look around at this blasphemous world. But let me ask you, do your lives reflect a reverence and awe for this God? Here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus invites us to pray, hallowed be your name, he is not simply inviting us to wish that God's name be hallowed. He is inviting us to acknowledge that God's name is indeed holy. And when that happens, I do believe that God will use that to continue to transform our lives and our hearts as we pray, as we yearn, as we beg that God's name be made holy by every person in every place, as we meditate on what that means and what that looks like, God begins to reveal to us what that is. And he starts to change us. There's a reason that before any of the other petitions happen, that God invites us to pray for his holiness. And that's because if we cannot first acknowledge that God is holy, 
we're not going to be able to pray sincerely anything else. How can you pray that God's kingdom come and his will be done if you don't believe he is worthy of your reverence? How can you pray, forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation if you do not believe that God is worthy of your worship? And in this moment when Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name, he is actually in essence inviting us to understand God's holiness and to worship him. God's holiness, his set-apartness is radical. As I said, he is a lion. He is the God who lets not a single wrong thing go unanswered. That is a beautiful picture of how just he is. But he's also our father. Because in and of himself, through the work of Jesus, our father took that punishment, that wrong, that judgment upon himself. Why? So that you and that I could call him Father. And I submit to you that we will not be able to find any example, any person in our legends, in our myths, and in our greatest imaginations like this Father. So when Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name, he not only invites us to understand his holiness, but he invites us to cry out that all people everywhere would experience this Father. And it's exactly what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. When we did our series, Revive Us Again, we talked about this word, gospel saturation, that every man, woman, and child would have a daily encounter with God through his people in word and deed, that every man, woman, and child would come to know the holiness of our God. It's that Habakkuk 2.14, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the entire earth as the waters cover the sea. So let me ask you, do your prayers start with a yearning that every single person in every single place would know your Father, would come to understand his holiness, and that you yourself would grow in your knowledge. I want to invite the uh, band to come up. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. As we do so, I want to remind us of a couple of things. First of all, I want to remind us, this is a picture of who our God is. As we take this broken cracker, it is a symbolic justice of our God as a lion. That no wrong in the world would be left unanswered. But as we dip the cracker into the wine or the grape juice, we are also reminded that our God is our Father, that his blood was shed so that our was broken so that we could become whole. I want to leave you with three things to consider. And the first is to simply ask, do you know God as your Father? If you are coming to him 
as a landlord, he invites you into relationship. He invites you to understand that he is not simply there as some abstract other greater figure, but that he wants to sit in the quiet places of your life and hear from you. The second thing I want to challenge you to ask yourself today is, do you see God as heavenly, as holy? Take stock of your life, take stock of your prayers, and ask yourself, does this reflect someone who truly understands the holiness of our God? The final thing I want to ask you to reflect on is do you regularly yearn that every this holy Father and does that get reflected in the way that you pray? I'm going to pray for us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.